0: Hello everyone and welcome back after a really, really long or it feels really long um, hiatus I guess you could say I took some time for myself and I think the time the last time we were together we were talking about good old Joshy Duggar I think that's what it was God it feels like it was so long ago and I don't think it was really that long ago but anyway. Um, yeah, so I, I had planned to take a break for the month of May. Um, my birthday is in May. I went out to the desert with some friends. I spent some time with my family. Um, I, it, was, it was good. It was good. It was really good. Um, I kind of focused on some work stuff for a little while, and now I'm back. But I also wanted to share, just because there might be a little bit of crossover interest, Um, Another thing that I spent the month of May doing was I started a second podcast. (laughs) So as if keeping up with this wasn't enough, um, I started a second podcast. It's called Below Average Credentials. And it is a look at the way people, uh, especially cishet men, uh, choose to present themselves on dating apps. And it's one part funny, one part just kind of sad. Um, I try to give some advice. We kind of, we talk about, you know, yes, this this dating profile is ridiculous, but like, here's how you can do it better. So it's not all, it's not all, we're just, we're not just making fun of these people. We are actually starting conversations about how, um, you know, you can best present yourself to ultimately attract what you're looking for. So, if that is something you're interested in, please do check it out. You can find that um, the page for that podcast on Instagram at below average cred. Um, below average credentials is also listed on probably whatever. Listening platform you are listening to this episode on, um, you can probably go find below average credentials. So, please do if that's something that you might be interested in. Please, please take a moment to check it out. And I'm not really sure yet how um, updating and maintaining that podcast is going to kind of fit in with updating and maintaining this one. This this Runaway Eve is my baby. Runaway Eve is my priority. Um, And now that it's summer and I have a little bit of uh, a little bit of extra free time I have some really great topics lined up that I really want to do some deeper dives into Um, I'm hoping to get back on a a regular recording schedule I'm also hoping to continue improving my sound. I... (laughs) Totally forgot until I opened up a little bit and shared this project with um, one of my work colleagues. That I have access to a recording studio at work, so I'm not sure if I. I also have some ideas of how I can improve my sound here from home. I would rather continue recording at home because that's what's most convenient for me right now. I'm working from home, but um, I am really interested in, in giving the studio a shot too. So I might do that. So so there might be some experimentation with my sound coming up. Um, I'm going to be getting intro music pretty soon hopefully um, and I'm looking at I'm looking into some media groups to hopefully um, distribute this this podcast project a little bit more widely. So some some changes are coming some some bigger things are coming. Um, you know I think I've made it pretty clear that this project has been a long time coming for me. And this podcast really means a lot to me, so I want to do it right. And now that I finally have a little bit more time, and I, you know, I have a few episodes under my belt, and I have this experience down pretty much of you know sitting doing my research and then sitting here and recording. Um, I want to expand on that a little bit. There are some topics that I have kind of been holding off on um, because I know that they're going to take up a little bit more of my time to present them with the. Respect that they demand and the research that they really require Um, And so now that I've got a little bit more time and a little bit more experience Why not? That's kind of where I'm at. Why not? And I'm starting that Today really I today we're going to be talking about white Christian nationalism um, which is really aside from purity culture is probably the biggest topic within evangelical Christianity, um, that made me want to do this podcast way back when I first started thinking about this project. White Christian nationalism was one of those things that I really grew up with. I really grew up surrounded by, and I I didn't realize that until I really had a word for it, which wasn't until, you know, just a few years ago, really. Um, and there are a lot of aspects of white Christian nationalism that we could do individual deep dives into, and I want to do that. So today's really going to be kind of an overview. Today is an introduction to white Christian nationalism. I want to provide a little bit of a historical context because a lot of people tend to think that this is something new. A lot of people tend to think that this is something that came about because of Trump and came about with sort of the shift of um, the Republican Party towards, um, you know, the people like to call that the the, par- the, the party of family values, um, Reagan, all of that. Like when, when church kind of started being combined with the conservative party, a lot of people think that that's when it started when that's not when it started. Um, white Christian nationalism has been around for a very long time and has sort of paved the way for people like Reagan and Trump and, What really what the Republican Party looks like and stands for today, Um, but there is some history there. So I want to talk about that. And then I want to kind of give an overview of how it started uh, up through where we're at now and let that be a starting place for all of these other individual topics within the larger framework of white Christian nationalism that I do want to take deep dives into at some point. So that being said, let's go ahead and get started. And I really wanna approach this introduction to white Christian nationalism by framing this conversation that's been happening recently because of the very obvious sort of spotlight on white Christian nationalism. Um, And I am, of course, talking about the insurrection, coup attempt, whatever you wanna call it, um, that happened back in January and there have been some pretty interesting responses to that including responses from evangelical leaders condemning those actions um m- many of which though still support trump um so it it's just we're in a really interesting time right now where the people who should be using this as a, as a Catalyst to take a look at themselves and take a look at, you know, kind of how they got here and what their practices are, what their beliefs are, are failing to do that. <laughs> and I want to talk about that. Um, we're going to talk about that first, and then I'm going to contextualize it by looking at sort of the historical um, and biblical roots of white Christian nationalism. And we'll go from there. And this is as good a time as any to just remind everyone listening that I am in no way a historian of any of this information. I am not a theologian. I am not a biblical scholar. I am simply a person with very real lived experiences uh and an opinion. So keep that in mind. Um I'm always open to learn when I am wrong. Um but I am also more than willing to share my opinion and will never stop sharing my opinion on these topics so yeah i'm not an expert um but i am someone with a lot of feelings and a lot of thoughts uh on this topic so you know just keep that in mind and if you want to hear the same perspective from somebody who has that background um i would recommend again i i mention this podcast often, but Straight White American Jesus, the co-hosts of that show, are both um, extremely intelligent, intellectual um, men with with backgrounds on on these subjects. So, um, if you want more of a, an intellectual approach, I highly recommend checking out uh, Straight White American Jesus. They have done several episodes on or relating to uh, the insurrection. So go check that out if you want that perspective, and I, and I recommend getting that perspective as well. So I want to start by looking at an article on NPR called Evangelical Leaders Condemn Radicalized Christian Nationalism, and I want to discuss this from the perspective of someone who is quite frankly pretty surprised that these people are condemning this belief system and these acts when evangelical Christianity was built on nationalistic ideal um, and we're gonna get to that we're gonna get to that later in this episode but but I just when I saw this article, I want to feel good about it and I want to be happy that there are leaders in this religion speaking out and that there are people who recognize that these, You know, extreme acts don't represent the religion as a whole. But it's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for me to look at this article and to read this article and read the letter that the article references without just feeling so embarrassed and just like, come on, guys. I mean, you can condemn something all you want, but you have enabled this behavior. You are enabling this behavior still, even while you're supposedly condemning it, you're enabling it. You've bred this behavior. Your belief system bred this behavior. So I don't really understand like why now? Why condemn this behavior now? People the article references call this behavior radical. They they say that these these people are are radicalized, but this behavior has been going on forever forever and again we're gonna get to that um there are biblical roots to white christian nationalism and i just i don't understand how you can base an entire belief system off of off of something and then the second something bad happens or something supposedly extreme happens um and now everyone's talking about it and now everyone's condemning people are condemning the white christian evangelicals that participated in the insurrection um the same way that we condemn you know radical extremist extremist terrorists like you know domestic terrorism is is a way that a lot of people are choosing um to describe what happened that day in january myself included and it's like now that now that that's happening because it's on such a large scale and there are so many eyes on it you want to condemn it but where were you when these behaviors were happening anyway where were you when the beliefs that go into quote radicalizing someone were being taught in your churches where were you and i don't want to go off on too much of a tangent right now let's just go ahead and get into um, dissecting this article. So the article opens like this. It says, a coalition of evangelical Christian leaders is condemning the role of radicalized Christian nationalism and feeding the political extremism that led to the violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th by supporters of former President Donald Trump. In an open letter, more than 100 pastors, ministry and seminary leaders, and other prominent evangelicals expressed concern about the growing radicalization they're seeing, particularly among white evangelicals. The letter notes that some members of the mob that stormed the Capitol carried Christian symbols and signs that read, Jesus saves, and that one of the rioters stood on the Senate rostrum and led a Christian prayer. The letter calls on other Christian leaders to take a public stand against racism, Christian nationalism, conspiracy theories, and political extremism. The article goes on to quote part of the letter itself, and the letter is linked. Um, I will, of course, link it in the show notes for this episode. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it is quite long, but I do want to talk about parts of it. So let's let's start there. Let's, let's do that before I get into any more of the... Of the NPR article let's let's take a quick look at the letter itself and again this letter is quite long but I am going to read a couple paragraphs to start off with so it says we recognize the damage done by radicalized Christian nationalism in the world the church and in the lives of individuals and communities we know from experts on radicalization that one of the key elements is a belief that your actions are blessed by God and ordained by your faith This is what allows so many people who hold to a Christian nationalism view to be radicalized. While we come from varied backgrounds and political stances, we stand together against the perversion of the Christian faith as we saw on January 6th, 2021. We also stand against the theology and the conditions that led to the insurrection. And the letter carries on in that same vein. They talk about what they call mutations to the faith. They call this a version of American nationalism that is trying to camouflage itself as Christianity. Um, They make a really interesting connection to um, Islam. So um, let me just read this paragraph actually, because I do think it's, it's quite interesting. It says, just as many Muslim leaders have felt the need to denounce distorted, violent versions of their faith, we feel the urgent need to denounce this violent mutation of our faith. What we saw manifest itself in the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, 2021, is a threat to our democracy, but it is also a threat to Orthodox Christian faith. The word Christian means Christ-like. As leaders in the church, we do not agree on everything, but we can agree on this. Christians should live in a way that honors Jesus and reminds the world of him. And I think this is the part that makes me feel kind of sad. I, I, I truly believe that this letter um, and this denouncement is coming from a good place. Um, I think the people that signed this letter I have a lot of respect for. I think they're probably very good people. I think they're probably very um, good oh, how do I want to put this? I almost said good Christians, but that, to be honest, that means absolutely nothing to me at this point in my life. Um, I think they're probably good people. And I think they're, they probably are, um, bastions of the faith that they, uh, represent. I I think they probably uphold the core tenets of Christianity as they, as they believe it. Um, and, and I think that's, I, this is the kind of people that, um, any faith should be lucky to have representing um, the body as a whole. But the problem I have is that this is not representative of the body as a whole in that I would say that the acts of not necessarily the people that participated in the insurrection itself, but that that belief system, that inherent... Um, belief of a God-given right to America and that belief that you know America is God's chosen land and that white Christians are God's chosen people that is a core belief of Christianity in one way or another. That is a core tenet of the theology maybe not in in those terms maybe not as we understand that in a in a more Contemporary sense, but that, as I've been researching for this for this episode, which took me such a fucking long time, um, the term manifest destiny kept coming up, and that's kind of what's been in the back of my mind this entire time as I've been researching and 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 preparing for this episode. This idea of this God-given, divinely inspired right to this land and when we say that, we of course mean this This right belongs to white Christians. White Christian men, arguably, but white Christians in general. That is a mindset that has been a core tenet of Christianity since the 19th century. It has roots that go much deeper and that go much, much, much further back. And again, that is something that we'll get to, but I just find it interesting that this letter, and they and and they go on to to use some some specific examples. Um, they are trying to frame these this idea, I, I guess, for lack of a better term, of manifest destiny. This this idea of of the white Christians inherent right to this land as sort of an outlier belief. They cite the KKK um, using. The symbolism of the Christian cross and calling themselves a Christian organization, and then they and then they talk about um, the the overall belief of evangelical Christianity um, that undocumented immigrants don't belong here, and they talk about those things as these sort of outlier examples of things that that very small group of people who call themselves evangelical Christians did but we pushed back against that and like hey I'm sure I'm sure there were people that pushed back against um the KKK and all of the the terror that that group of people um caused and is still causing because let's be real um and I and I know that there are there are leaders in Christianity that are very compassionate towards and welcoming to Um, On undocumented individuals. I I know that, but that's the outlier in my experience. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the outlier of the entire fucking belief system. I want to believe that there are more people who are Christ-like, like uh, like this letter alludes to. I want to believe that there are more leaders in this faith that are like the people signing this letter. I do, but I don't, I don't believe that. I think that the people signing this letter are the outliers and I wish that weren't the case, but that's my experience. And that's, that's what I see. And the NPR article actually kind of touches on this in a way. So let's go back to that again. I will link the the letter. In the show notes if you want to read it in full. It is very interesting, and it is, it is really well written, um, but but let's, let's go back to the article. And one of the things about this whole article that stands out to me the most is this, it's almost bathed in just this disbelief. It seems to me like, and, and this is, I mean, this is what I've been going on about now for a little while. It seems like these people have just either been willfully ignorant or in denial over the fact that this, this belief system that they call extreme, that they're calling radicalized, has existed for a very long time. One person is quoted as saying, people from our very communities called people to this action in the days before, unleashed them into the Capitol, and then chose to baptize that action in the name of Christ. And this is our time where we need to stand up. Really? Now? And, and, and I said that. I, I've already said that. Why now? Why not decades ago? Why not centuries ago? I, I just, I, I don't understand. I, I don't understand. The article goes on to explain why evangelical Christians made up a critical part of Trump's base and a majority supported him in both 2016 and 2020. A recent survey by the American Enterprise Institute found that three in five white evangelicals believe, falsely, that President Biden was not legitimately elected. Three in five. Three in five. You don't have to be the one literally breaking into the fucking Capitol. When you believe that, and you get up on your fucking pulpit, and you preach that to the sheep following you that that Biden stole the election and that Trump is is God's destined leader for this country. You caused this. You caused it. According to Gallup, and they're looking at two different two different surveys here. One of them, according to it says the AP Vote Cast survey, I don't really know what that is, um 81% of white evangelical Protestant voters went for Trump this year compared with 18% who voted for Biden. And then they cite another poll that's that's a little less alarming, only by a little. It says the Edison Exit polls estimate that 76% of white evangelicals voted for Trump, 24% for Biden. So let's let's be let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's be generous here. 76%. Okay. According to Gallup, 76% of evangelical voters voted for Trump. That's not an outlier number. And I would even be so bold as to say that you don't have to storm a Capitol building to be radicalized. Donald Trump is and was something else entirely, right? A a lot of people said that they voted for him because he was different, because he spoke his mind and he wasn't a politician and all that shit, right? Again, I would be so bold as to say that even by nature of following that you're pretty radical and you're pretty extreme and when you get up in front of your congregation and you talk about how this person is God's predestined leader for this country you are breeding this extremism and you are willingly cultivating this radicalization and this is where I get to the part of this article that was really quite jarring for me you know they quote these faith leaders that seem so shocked by this behavior and then they link to this beautifully written letter you know denouncing all of this but then they say right here Prominent white evangelical leaders have been among Trump's most vocal supporters. Several, including Ralph Reed of the Faith and Freedom Coalition and Dallas-based pastor Robert Jeffress, have condemned the insurrection but remained steadfast in their support for Trump. They go on to say, Signers of the open letter calling out Christian nationalism include Jerusha Duford, a granddaughter of the evangelical preacher, the late Reverend Billy Graham. In an interview with NPR, Duford said, She was heartbroken by the events of January 6th, a feeling she said she experienced throughout the Trump years as she watched many white evangelical leaders align themselves with him. They then quote her as saying, it felt like this was a symptom of what has been happening for a long time. And I don't have a lot to say about Billy Graham right now. Uh, He could be his own series of episodes, quite frankly. He wasn't not problematic himself. And citing these people that, you know, condemned the insurrection, sure, but are still so unwavering in their support for Donald Trump. And this article actually links to an, another article on the Washington Post that I'm not gonna get into because it, again, could be an episode all on its own, just dissecting that one. But they, they quote this, uh robert jeffress guy uh, uh, over on this other article where he basically he yes he does publicly and, and very openly and explicitly speak out against the violence at the capitol but it says right here in this washington post article that's also linked below but when asked about trump's role in the riot jeffress swerved i think there's election fraud in every election Was there enough in this election to sway it to Biden? I don't know enough. I try to stay with what I know about. But yet here you are. You are condemning the violence, sure, but you're also basically saying, yeah, they were mad and we don't really know if the reason why they were mad is true or not, So, and I don't know enough to make that call. What? But then this Washington Post article goes on to uh, further quote this this person. Um, It says, Despite the events of Wednesday, both Jeffress and Reed were unequivocal in their praise of Trump's presidency overall. Jeffress said, no conservative president has done more than Donald Trump to champion Christian values. He has done more in the pro-life, pro-religious liberty, pro-Israel with moving the embassy. No one has been more vocal. I don't regret for one minute supporting him. So, This kind of goes back to this whole idea of Manifest Destiny, right? This whole idea of, you know, this is our nation, and by our, I mean white Christian. This is a white Christian nation, and therefore, who cares what else happens? Who cares what Donald Trump does? He did X, Y, and Z, and it furthers our cause, and so therefore, I support him. And this is just so gross to me. I hate this. I hate this lack of critical thinking that we see. um, I mean, we see it. We see it. it's human nature to not want to think critically, frankly, but we do see it a lot in the right when it comes to politics. Um, Who cares what else happens? If it furthers my agenda, then I'm there. I I support them as long as they're gonna do uh, X, Y, and Z things that I want them to do. And I think that's why I take this whole idea of religious leaders condemning these actions with a huge grain of salt. You cannot condemn something that is the byproduct of the thing that you have been supporting from the start. You cannot tell people and I mean fuck, I don't want to I don't want to have another diversion, but it's the same as when you know the right tries to tell people how they should and shouldn't protest. Can't protest violently, but God forbid you take a knee during the national anthem. Like, you just, you don't want any protesting at all, just come out and say it. You don't want anybody speaking out against the things that you believe in. It's the same kind of thing, like, you can't tell people how they can and can't react to this belief system and this national identity that you have created, especially, you created that. You've supported that from the start. You don't get to tell people that, okay, no, you've gone too far. So that's why this condemnation, I, I think it's a little bit easier to swallow when I know for a fact that, that said religious leader is also very outspoken against um, Trump and Trumpian politics as a whole. But when you still buy into all that shit and that's what you're still preaching as you know, God's destiny for this country, you can't turn around and condemn people for, for going to the extreme in the name of that belief that you are preaching. It just, it doesn't work that way. So, so all of this, all of this um, condemnation, denouncement of these actions, I take with a huge grain of salt and I think you should too. This article states that apparently there was someone on um, a Zoom call uh, of, of some, it says, during last week's Zoom call, May Elise Cannon of the ecumenical group Churches for Middle East Peace called out unnamed evangelical leaders who she said have declined to sign citing concerns, including how it would go over with their churches or religious organizations. So they know. They know the the people that the people that are refusing to sign this letter at least have more integrity because they know that this isn't this isn't a, a minority within this belief system. They don't want to sign the letter because they're because they know that the people that, that follow them have bought into this national identity and have bought into this political belief system and have i would take it a step further and say that they know that these people have have conflated this political belief system with their religious belief system and that's another another topic within white christian evangelicalism that i want to get to in depth at a later date i want to i want to look at this conflation of christianity and nationalism patriotism all of that i, I want to look at that in depth in fact that's one topic that actually um, Really catalyzed me and finally getting this project off the ground. that's something that I really want to look at. so we'll talk about that more in depth later, but I do think it's really interesting that it's coming up here and to the point where people who do disagree with this action are afraid to speak out because they know what it would do to their churches and and their church bodies. And now I want to transition to looking at the historical and biblical context for white nationalism in Christianity by looking at an, another essay on the capital insurrection. But before I leave this NPR article altogether, I want to point out two really interesting things that stood out to me. The first is that a lot of these leaders keep using the word heresy or heretical or anything related to heresy, which we know in a religious context to be a, a belief or a view that is, um, contradictory to the norms within that religion. Okay, so keep that in mind. A lot of these leaders are calling what happened at the Capitol and sort of the radical extreme views that that enabled that behavior, heresy. We also have, remember earlier in this episode, when I quoted Jerusha Duford, who is the granddaughter of Billy Graham, she said, it felt like this was a symptom of what has been happening for a long time and i would love to have more context for that quote i would love to know what she's talking about does she when she says a long time does she mean centuries or does she mean you know the four years that trump was in office what is what does she mean by a long time it felt like this was a symptom of what has been happening for a long time i think that is a great statement i think it's a very telling statement but I'm not sure where she's coming from in saying it. So let's contextualize that statement by looking at the history of this belief system. So I am looking at an essay called White Christian Nationalism, The Deep Story Behind the Capitol Insurrection. This is by Philip Gorski. I found it on Georgetown University's web page for the Berkeley Center for Religious Peace and World Affairs and this essay is fantastic highly recommend it will of course uh, as with all of my other sources and things that I cite be listed in the show notes I highly recommend giving this whole essay a read and sharing it with friends and family it's fantastic and before I really get into the body of this article Um, I want to read the first couple paragraphs because I think this is really fascinating. I think it's well-written, and I think it really sums up kind of what was so jarring and shocking about about the insurrection. So the author states, As one observer noted, the January 6th protesters seemed a motley crew. Country club Republicans, well-dressed social conservatives, and white evangelicals in Jesus caps— shoulder to shoulder with QAnon cultists, Second Amendment cosplay commandos, and doughy, hardcore white nationalists. One group erected a giant cross, another a wooden gallows. Someone waved a Jesus saves banner while another sported a Camp Auschwitz hoodie. But the closer you look, the murkier things become. Christians waved Trump flags. The Proud Boys kneeled and prayed. One man, decked out as a cosplay crusader, clutched a large leather Bible to his chest with skeleton gloves. What looked like apples and oranges turned out to be a fruit cocktail, white Christian nationalism. And I think that, that those two paragraphs really sum it up. White Christian nationalism is, is kind of the, the binding force here behind all of these seemingly very different groups. And it all has its basis in American history and in theology. And that is what this essay really gets into. So the roots here really are this conversation or this question surrounding who has a right to this land and why? And how is that right given to them? And how is that right maintained? And so I'm actually gonna start this conversation here by looking at the middle section of this essay and this is the part where we look at the theology behind how behind how early colonizers of this land not only justified their actions but believed that they were doing what they saw as right and what they saw as um, predestined by God in a way and and divinely encouraged and they, they they were really doing what they felt was their inherent duty almost when you really look at, at the scripture behind it. And I'm going to put a little warning here just because the way that some of this is written, the author is really speaking in terms of the way these early colonizers felt and and treated this land and treated the people whose land this is. Um, and so uh, there are going to be some terms when I'm reading directly from the essay, there are going to be some terms and, and some ways that this is phrased, especially when it comes to talking about the native peoples who whose land we are currently living in, on, um, that I wouldn't Choo- I wouldn't choose to discuss these people in this way. So just please be, please be aware if, if that is something that you're sensitive to. Um, the language uh, over the next few minutes is, is going to get a little, I don't know if it's outwardly offensive, but it, it could be considered offensive. So just, just please be advised and, and take care of yourself if you need to skip, skip ahead a little bit. Um, otherwise, I'm going to just jump right into reading this part of this essay. The author states, To understand how American Christianity became so entangled with racism and violence, we first have to trace it back to its scriptural roots. Those roots are dual. It turns out that white Christian nationalism is not just one story, but two. The first is a Promised Land story. The New England Puritans saw themselves as the heirs of the Biblical Israelites. They imagined themselves as a chosen people, and they came to see the New World as their Promised Land. And as their relationship with the natives shifted from curiosity to hostility they began to see the indians as canaanites who had to be conquered the second story is an end time story most christian theologians read revelation in allegorical terms as a depiction of the moral struggles within the believer's heart but some interpreted the text more literally as a description of bloody struggles to come that is how many puritan radicals read it and they exported those ideas to new england The two stories gradually fused together during the Puritans' wars with the Indians. Cotton Mather came to believe that the New World would be the central battlefield in the final struggle between good and evil. He placed himself and his brethren on the side of the good, and the Catholic, French, and their native allies on the side of evil. He likened the Indians to demons and viewed the killing of Indians as a blood sacrifice to an angry god. It was war that welded Protestantism and Englishness together in the New World. And we see, it makes sense how this really sort of lays the foundation, uh, both biblically and in terms of, of um, early American history. This really does lay the foundation for this belief that these people held that not only was this land theirs, rightfully, um, given to them by God, but that their, their identity as a group... Um, really bonded them against others, against the the other. And the essay goes somewhat deep into how uh, this idea of us against the other and we are the ones that have the divine right to this land, how all of that gets enmeshed with um, the identities of whiteness and also the identity of being American. Um, because at this time, you know, American was used to refer to the native people whose land this is. And there's a a conversation in this essay that I'm actually not gonna touch on because I don't feel like I have the necessary knowledge to to talk about it. I would literally just be reading what's in this essay to you without any sort of commentary, and I don't wanna do that. So uh, again, the article is, the essay is linked, so please take a look at it, but um, the author does go into how these these identities are connected and how this really becomes the birth of white Christian nationalism. But going back towards the beginning of this essay, now that we've sort of laid the biblical scriptural foundation for where these beliefs come from to begin with, um, in very very basic introductory terms. <laughs> I want to talk about what this has to do with this like national identity so uh here's another paragraph from the essay white christian nationalism is first of all a story about america it says america was founded as a christian nation by white christians and its laws and institutions are based on biblical that is protestant christianity this much is certain though america is divinely favored once its enormous wealth and power in exchange for these blessings, America has been given a mission to spread religion, freedom, and civilization by force if necessary. But that mission is endangered by the growing presence of non-whites, non-Christians, and non-Americans on American soil. White Christians must therefore take back the country, their country. And this, this is kind of where we end up. This is where we're at right now. So you have this group of people that has historically believed that they have a divine right to this land, that this land is theirs, and that they have this divine responsibility to protect it. We live in a, a current situation where you know, a growing number of people are turning their backs on, on that religious belief, are more accepting to people that don't fit this narrative or don't fit this identity. And they see this as a threat. They see this as a threat to them, that, that identity group that is so um, protective of themselves against the other, but they also see it as a threat to this divine responsibility. In exchange for these blessings, America has been given a mission to spread religion, freedom, and civilization by force if necessary. So again, it's this, it's this divine responsibility, it's this mission um, that these people believe they need to take up because they need to protect this land and they've been given this land the essay continues by saying white christian nationalism is not just a story it is also a political vision violence and racial purity are central to that vision as samuel perry and andrew whitehead have shown white christian nationalists tend to favor a strong military and capital punishment and oppose gun control White Christian nationalism is thus strongly correlated with opposition to interracial marriage, non-white immigration, and affirmative action. And this is really, this is kind of the crux of it for me because my experience growing up in, in this belief system, the kind of people that I was around, the kind of white men that I was around, quite frankly, were fit this definition of white Christian nationalist all extremely supportive of military to to the extreme, supportive of capital punishment. I would see it on Facebook posts. I would hear it, maybe not explicitly in sermons, but there was very much this attitude of punishment for anybody who stepped out of line, anybody they felt deserving. Um, and those people would always be the other. There was never that sort of urgency for punishment for people within the the in-group within the identity group within the church and we saw this play out right when we talked about josh duggar this is a person who perpetrated multiple acts of sexual assault against fellow church members family members and nothing really happened to him he was made to atone for what he did supposedly And I'm sure there was a lot of guilt placed on him because the church is really good at guilting people into doing what they want. But there was really no punishment. And here we have Donald Trump running with this promise to get rid of the criminals and rapists. It's really frustrating watching people in the church look the other way when it comes to one of their members and then be so dishearteningly cruel to people on the outside with no, or at best, very little basis uh, for, their, for their actions and their beliefs about, about the other. Um, and, and everybody I grew up around opposed gun control, everybody, which is really ironic considering the sect of Christianity I grew up in, one of the core tenets is pacifism. <laughs> So I grew up surrounded by hypocrites, openly hypocritical, uh, white Christian nationalists, and I didn't have a word for it then, but I do now, and I and I know that that's, I know that that's what those people are, um, and I think that's probably why I feel so passionately about this this topic, and why I wanted to. This episode took me like a month to put together and it's not even, I'm just barely scratching the surface. <laughs> and I think it's because this one carries a lot of weight for me, this is really important for me. So the author ends the essay with these, these two paragraphs. White Christian nationalism is what linguist George Lakoff calls a frame. A frame is like a bare bones movie script. It has roles like a cast of characters Relations between the roles and scenarios carried out by those playing the roles like a movie It can be made and remade with new actors and modified scenarios The frontiersman becomes an Indian fighter and then a cowboy the scene shifts from Appalachia to Kentucky to Wyoming Trumpism is among other things the latest version of the white Christian nationalist frame echoing the promised land story Trump says he will take back the country from the outsiders and invaders who have taken control. Immigrants and secularists, Muslims and Mexicans, and then restore it to its rightful owners. Real, that is white Christian, Americans. Echoing the end times story, Trump paints the world in terms of us and them, good and evil, and hints at violent struggles to come. The first such struggle took place on January 6th, 2021. It will not, I fear, be the last. And I would go so far as to say that that was not the first violent struggle. We saw violent reactions to very valid demonstrations that took place just last summer. We saw them before that, too. It seems like any time a member of the other group, the out group, one one of these dangerous groups speaks up and speaks out in any way there's a violent response and to me that's a colonizer response it just goes right back to well this is my land if you don't like it you leave or you shouldn't be here to begin with and i know that that sentiment is not necessarily inherently part of all of all christianity i guess maybe i should have started this episode with with that sort of disclaimer White Christian nationalism, I think has taken over evangelical Christianity, and I think that the Venn diagram of evangelical Christians and white Christian nationalist sentiment is almost a circle, not completely a circle, but almost. Um, but there are I, I know that there are different denominations of Christianity and and Christianity is a very, broad religion and I know that there are um, people of color who practice uh, Christianity who certainly aren't part of the white nationalist movement Um, there's a lot of nuance here and there's a lot of things that come into play there's a lot of identity politics that come into play so I I don't want to come across like I'm generalizing broadly across the entirety of, of Christianity or even the entirety of evangelical Christianity but that being said white christian nationalism is a problem. It's a growing problem. It is one that that churches and faith leaders absolutely should be speaking out against. But it's nothing new. It's not a new problem. It's not something that cropped up in the last 4 years because of Donald Trump. You can't blame Trump for this. You can maybe blame Trump and the sort of the direction that conservatism is heading in for maybe ripping off the Band-Aid a little bit, maybe taking the blindfold off a little bit, but it's not a new problem. White Christian nationalism and all the bullshit that comes with it, this has been part of American history since American history started being documented. This has been foundational in the founding of this country as we know it today. This idea of a divine right to this land is the reason why this land was colonized. This is our history. And for evangelical Christianity, this is part of it. And and you can't you can't denounce it without accepting and admitting the fact that this is part of your religious belief system, whether it's something that you personally believe in and personally uphold or not. And that is where I'm going to leave it today. Um, I know that this was kind of all over the place and it was, again, really just me scratching the surface. I do hope that you found some, I hope you found it interesting. I hope you found it infuriating because it is. And I hope you gained some knowledge somewhere (laughs) in this very broad, very shallow Um, look into the origins of white Christian nationalism so so we will be diving deeper into subtopics if you will um, in the coming weeks and months but I wanted to get this first little introduction out there so as always be good keep questioning everything and if you have a faith leader in your life if you go to church still Have these conversations with your pastor. Have these conversations with your faith leader and hold them accountable. Hold them accountable for doing the right thing and also for admitting to the wrong that the church has committed and enabled. I'll see you all next time. Bye.